begin with a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that now we may, as we go into the fall, really turn our hearts towards two things, one of them being the Holy Scriptures, that we might become students of your word and bring honor, not to the man Luther because of Luther being a saint, but rather that Martin Luther would help us to see the Scriptures themselves and to see Christ and that we are being faithful to our Lutheran heritage and our tradition if we are Christians with faith in Christ as the solid foundation of our life. But also we pray that we may thereby also appreciate the great confession of those who have gone before us and who have stood upon the very foundations of the uh, prophetic and apostolic church. Help us see that in their courage and conviction that we also may be inspired in our own day, in our own era, to also confess with clarity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's kind of funny because Mark Harris, who's standing back there drinking coffee, um, he had a question for us today about the Lord's Supper, and actually Martin Chemnitz addresses that uh, within, our, uh, within our study. But I, I don't want to just be doing historical stuff and talking about doctrine. I also want to be able to drink from the pure word itself. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start there today. I'm glad to see that there are only two people that have, don't have Bibles. <laughs> Poor Shelley. <laughs> okay. I always say the success of a good Bible study is that you don't get more than two verses every Sunday. So we're going to start off by reading verses 1 and 2. Um, together, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Are we together in 1 Peter chapter 1? We'll st we'll, should we start our engines once more? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Okay, well here's that great word that we pointed out in our worship service, Church of God in that hymn, Elect and Glorious, Elect. What are the, what does this phrase elect mean? This is, uh, this, this really kind of goes to the very core of our theology. Election. To, to, to make a choice. And of course, in our case, who's making the choice about us being Christians? God is. And before time and eternity, the, the whole idea here behind the doctrine of election is not intended to be you know, kind of leaving us, I guess you might say, with some sort of a philosophical idea that... that, that God is kind of has this idea about who we are going to be and are and that somehow this is supposed to mystify us. The word election is 
or the doctrine of election is there to be of great comfort for us as Christians, especially when we go through times of trial and tribulation. God chose you. God is the one who brought you to faith. God is the one who knew your name. God is the one who willed you not only to come into existence, but he willed your, your conversion, your salvation, every good work that you will ever do is going to actually be due to God himself. And when you get to heaven, you and I are going to spend an eternity thanking and praising God because we didn't contribute one iota to anything that happened to us. Now, we participated. As the old saying goes, Luther would say, the horse and the rider, not to pick on anybody here in particular, but when that horse does the will of the rider, it's nice that the horse is doing the will of the rider, but it's still the will of the rider. God is wanting us to participate with him in the good works that we do, but everything that we do as Christians that redounds to God's glory, even our conversion, is something that God, out of his will, chose. And so, you know, what do, what do we say when, when all of a sudden our, um, something happens to us where, you know, our, our mother or our father gets sick and dies? What happens when um, there's a tragedy like this down in Florida now? Where I guess today it's beginning. These these two are are Floridaites, and they they every year they sin much and greatly by leaving us and going down to Florida. But they're they're on San Marcos Island, and it is right in the pathway of the storm. You see, God does punish people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> they. But what do you, you know, you, you lose everything you have. You don't have insurance. You, your house is decimated. It's gone. You say, where's God? You get sick. This, what I mentioned today in, in my sermon, started getting all weepy teary about. I got a wonderful little girl who was confirmed with my daughter. She's a young mother. And she's in our prayers. And I care about her. What do you do when you have two children and you have cancer? And you don't know whether or not you could live. You want to see your children grow up. Is there a gracious God? That doctrine of election is there to remind us neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul will say. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope doesn't disappoint because God pours out his spirit into our hearts. Yeah, so when he says, you're the elect of God, what an honor that before time and eternity, God could actually look forward into time. I, 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 I'm always trying to tell my confirmation kids, look, just look backwards in time and history. Your great, 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 great grandfather was married and his wife died from the plague. He got remarried and you're descended from that second wife. Do you think that you would even exist if it hadn't been for that? And if God knew you before eternity, does this say something about the word almighty? That possibly God is at work in all things for our good. 
He is. And we have to comfort each other in these words. He'll never leave you. I will never forsake you, he says. And that's what's so wonderful about that word, elect. Now, I've consumed enough from one word. Strangers. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Aliens. Strangers. Um, what is a stranger? A stranger to the world, right? Um, I, I did a wedding yesterday up in Fort Wayne. And it turned out that, um, that the people that I married were actually known by some of our members here who came from the Decatur area. But, um, you know, uh, the text was taken from Romans chapter 12. And the apostle there is saying that we as Christians need to be transformed that there needs to be, the word literally is that there needs to be a metamorphosis and that we have to go through a spiritual metamorphosis. But he says when we do, then we are actually capable of being able to test things and tell what is right from what is wrong. Um, have you, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Nowadays, there are a lot of people that have been raised in, you know, I hate those psychological terms, but dysfunctional families, because I guess we're on some level, since we're all sinful, we're all a little dysfunctional, aren't we? But, but typically, a family, a father, mother, um, knowing how to be able to model that to our children, to see love, to see the way that parents care for each other, the way that they put each other first, and so on, as you're being raised in that kind of an environment, then when you see dysfunction in the world, you recognize it. And we don't realize, we're very gracious, very, very happy to be able to, to say that we've had good parents. And probably one of the reasons why we're here is because we did. But we can recognize now, they can recognize, our children can recognize the things that are wrong about relationships. You know, when the man doesn't properly tr treat his wife correctly, you can probably bet that he saw that from his own father and maybe in that dysfunction in his own family. When, what happens as, as Christians is that not only do we, from a kind of a moral and normal and well-healthy set of relationships, not only do we start recognizing what's wrong with the world, but, um, but we also... Um, as Christians, when we understand God's word, God's doctrine, when we understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, when we understand the power and purpose of baptism and all those things, bing, we can recognize when there's something wrong. Now, in the United States, in our country, in our era, in our time right now, you know, this is the, this is the era of no doctrine, that is to say that whereas God's word, when we say doctrine, uh, the word doctrine just really means teaching. I was, um, I was at the, uh, this wedding. I came out and, the, and this sweet, very sweet girl came up and she said, you know, I was the, I was the roommate of the, of the bride, you know, but when she was, uh, down there in uh, down here 
in this apartment complex across the street. And she, I said, well, did you ever come to church? And she said, no, I'm non-denominational. And I said, well, so your denomination is that you're non-denominational. In other words, everybody to denominate is to define. And when your teachings are defined in accordance with the scriptures, then what you get is you get what we call doctrine. And, you know, the old days of the Missouri Synod were that, you know, people would say, hey, they've got false doctrine, you know, and that was just kind of like the, um, the way of saying, they've got cancer. Um, you say, well, they've got false doctrine. Oh, yes, they have, they have demons in that church. But doctrine was kind of the, the, um, the word that we used. But what we mean by that is where you have doctrine, doctrine, there's an experience that follows But in American evangelicalism, experience precedes doctrine. That is to say, something is true according to the way in which you've experienced it. So you might say to people, as Lutherans, what, what do we believe about the Lord's Supper? What do, we, do we believe something that's scriptural? Tutoesti soma emu, this is my body, right? This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And you say, do you believe that? And they go, no. And you go, why? Well, I just don't think it's true. And you go, oops. So your experience or your thoughts determine doctrine. We as Christians have always been put in a position where we have to believe what it is Scripture says. Which do you suppose is more difficult to believe. That there is the body and blood of Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, or that the body of Jesus rose out of the tomb glorified and was at the same time still flesh and blood. You think one is more difficult than the other? You don't think the resurrection itself stands as a far, far more profound miracle even than the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? Everybody who agrees, raise their hand. <laughs> Everybody's good. Okay, well, yeah, so what do we say? He says here, elect strangers in the world. You will not have the world agreeing with you. You will not have oftentimes even those who profess the name of Christ agreeing with you. This is sometimes something that makes us feel very much like strangers. But it's not bad. Um, you don't want to be. We're pilgrims on earth, aren't we? Throughout. <laughs> now, I'm not going to spend 15 minutes on throughout. Um, throughout Pontus, Galatia, I was listening to uh, this Dan Carlin yesterday. Um, Galatia, the furthest remote part of the empire where the Gauls lived. The Gauls were the Celts. Now, it's a little bit difficult to perfectly define the Celts. I had heard that actually the Romans had transplanted them from Galatia, uh, from Gaul, which is kind of the rough uh, France, Belgium area, right? 
But, you know, these were kind of interesting people because they were, um, they filled almost all of Western Europe, France, parts of Germany, Belgium today, uh, parts of Spain. They were tall, some say sometimes six foot and above, and most of the Romans were like this. They were at least four or five, six inches shorter. They were uh, blonde, and if they weren't blonde, they became blonde because they, they stuck their head in lye, their hair in lye, and then they tied it back so they looked like punk rockers. And they were all extremely good-looking and strong and muscular, and when they really got whipped up for a battle, they would take off all their clothes and they would fight in the nude. Now, that's kind of an interesting people, don't you think? They, they say that actually, you know, they, uh, there, there are lots of thoughts about but we believe that probably that the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh were all of Celtic background. Uh, Julius Caesar defeated them in battle, killed over a million of them, they believe, and, and enslaved a million of them as well. And that was kind of the end of the, of the Celts in, uh, in Europe. And then they pushed them out of Europe and they went to England and to, then off into, uh, into Ireland and Scotland. So these are the same people. And who are these, these Galatians? Well, Paul will write to them. He'll say, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was publicly pro proclaimed as crucified? What did the Galatians begin to do? They started to fall into the teaching of works, works righteousness. And they began to believe these Judaizers who came along and said, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this or you can't be saved. And what does the Apostle Paul say? He says that in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through, you guys are pretty good, through faith. This is not of your own, right? Lest any man should boast. And so, uh, again, uh, what we have here is we have the, the Apostle Peter who's writing to this church now. Sometimes these people are erring. Sometimes Paul's, uh, or uh, John's um, book of Revelation kind of indicates that these, a lot of these churches, some are, were better than others in terms of their doctrine and life. But all of them, Cappadocia, these, this is where it is that, I think, has anybody been to Turkey before? You've been to Mona, how come you've been everywhere, but you've never gone with us anywhere? I don't know how that works. That, they have the underground cities in Cappadocia, is that right? Underground churches as well? Now, they would, they would, whenever they saw an enemy coming, they would disappear. Nobody would know where they went. They actually went underground, and they built entire cities underground in Cappadocia. Of course, Asia, Bithynia, this is believed where it is that, that uh, Luke was from. But now he goes on to verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now let's start there. Chosen. Chosen. Elected again. We live in a culture of what we might call the decision theology culture. Right? By the way, when did you accept Jesus as your Savior? You say... 
wait, people are now, here you hear of these Lutherans who are going to these churches where they're being rebaptized. How many times do you have to be adopted into a family? Twice? A child is adopted, right? Doesn't come out later on and say, now we're going to have the ceremony for when you accept your parents. Isn't that strange? So no, uh, it is where God chooses us. And then it's not so hard for us to believe that God could actually take a little child. A little child, even in the womb, can hear the Word of God. We hear that from John the Baptist, right? In the womb of his mother that God actually not only chooses us, but also is the one who has the power by his word to create faith in us. And this is God's choice. Oh, did you ever have, uh, those of you who are really old, do you remember the days of Sadie Hawkins dances? Did you ever ask him? Yeah, yeah, you're not that old, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Do, how many of you do not know what a Sadie Hawkins dance is? How many of you do? Well, okay, you're pretty good. Yeah, what's that little Abner cartoon, cartoon show? Where girls got to ask guys, and they, the shoe went on the other foot, and you know, you'd have guys that would be scurrying down into the boys' bathroom whenever they saw a girl coming that they thought might ask them that they didn't want to have ask them. But I guess the girls have been doing that too for a long time as well, for the guys. To choose, to be able to be the ones to choose. God chose you. You never choose God. He chooses you. He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. And to think that the faith that God has given to us is a gift that no man could ever choose. This is something given to us by God. And now you think, well, should we guard it? Should we protect it? Should we defend it? That sermon today? Boy, it gives you everlasting life. There's no death. When you are baptized, Paul says, when you're baptized into Christ, you die with Christ. Literally, as Christ was raised from the dead, you, because you were actually united with him in your baptism. You see why it is that we need to do this rather than this? Because if you say, have you been born again? We had a, had a guy I went to the seminary with. Um, he went to, was attending Trinity uh, Seminary up in Chicago. And uh, he, was, uh, he told me that Every, they were supposed to get up in chapel and they were supposed to kind of give their conversion experience and you know, when, they came, when they came to accept Christ and that kind of stuff. And he was studying this and studying this and studying this and so when it came to be his turn, he got up in the chapel and he said, um, I became a Christian when I was uh, uh, 12 days old. They said, what? He said, when I was baptized, he had been brought up in a Lutheran church. I became a Christian when I was 12 days old. Well, my goodness sakes, you cannot believe, how could a baby accept Jesus? He said, he accepted me. I became a child. And when you really think about kind of the, the logic of this, again, we go back to that subject of adoption. 
Have you ever thought, here's a little baby, I'll adopt it when the child accepts me? You go, of course not. You adopt it and thereby give that child all your love, right? So that as the child grows up, that child comes to grasp and understand the love that you have. But if that child, if, you're, if, you're, if that's not a child, if that's not your child until the child gets to be, what, eight years of age or something like this, does that child say, I accepted my parents? You say, no. This didn't just happen at your baptism. God chose you before the world was even created. Put that into your pipe and smoke it. No smoking. That's the only kind of smoking you can do, okay? All right. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now that word sanctifying, make holy, made holy, making holy. Um, you say, well, how, how, are we, how are we sanctified? And this, this, if we go into something like the book of Hebrews, it really, really takes us into a huge amount of theology all the way back there in the Old Testament where, for instance, if you were to become a priest, if you were to, to be the, become the high priest especially, you spent seven days in purification rites. And it was always through the use of blood that one became sanctified. Again, God's irony that he uses blood to wash and purify. So, what are we doing when we go to the Lord's Supper? Given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And what does that do? You know, it takes a, it takes a while to really think about this, but, you know, we have an old Adam in every single one of us. I, even Mona. She's, that, that's the reason why she hasn't been going on our trips. She goes with all those other people. But um, There's this old Adam in every single one of us. By nature, we are born with that old Adam, which is a corrupted, sinful nature. And that persona that lies inside of that little temple inside of us, there's a, there's a little temple in there, and there's a veil there, and that little sucker has been hiding behind that veil from the day that we were conceived. And so when you, meet, when you meet people in the world who have not known Christ, who have not undergone some sort of a transformation, they are, they are people who are hiding, for one thing, and they go through a process that, I mean, if you take out a book on psychology and you come up with every so-called dysfunction, every single one of them is connected and related to the idea that they're trying to get rid of the accusations against their conscience. I was, it was my mother's fault that I was, I'm this way today. Um, I, uh, I'm, I've become a slave to alcohol. The devil made me do it. Um, people who are, I mean, being raised in a society where people are prejudiced against me. So therefore, this is the reason for why it is the way I am. You know, you can name every, every form of disassociation, you might call it, that people have, it's related to the fact that the conscience doesn't want to accept sin. Because ultimately, that little old Adam behind us, 
he knows that someday he's going to have to face God in judgment. So, as Christians, we sin, as Luther would say, much and daily. Much and daily. Consciously, unconsciously. And it is necessary for us to have a cleansing of our conscience. If we can cleanse that conscience, then the old Adam loses his power. And the old Adam uses guilt as a way of being able to entrench us in sin. So, we, you know, like for instance, we talk about alcoholism. Um, in, in Utah, not, not, to, not to beat a, a dead horse, but in Utah, half of all Mormons who take a drink will become alcoholics. Because they have, first of all, alcohol is just automatically considered to be sinful. And secondly, when you don't have a, a way of forgiveness, see, it's, it's, a, it's a problem that you have that you can't tell anybody about. And the more guilt that you feel, actually the more that you get ensnared by your guilt, you go deeper and deeper. So the person who might have rage if he does not have a way of being able to deal with the guilt of his rage, he doesn't get better, he gets worse. You know, we, we have to, you know, even these, uh, like these D.A.R.E. programs and such that, that they have with kids, they're, they're, they're law programs is what they are. Just say no to drugs. Well, you think the old Adam really believes that? Well, the old Adam hears, don't, don't do drugs. And what, is the, what, what does the kid say when you say, don't put your tongue on the pump handle? He puts his tongue in the pump handle, right? Uh, so the, that, that old, that, this is what draws us into sin and makes us a slave to it. But when God comes along with his sanctifying blood, what he does is he cleanses the conscience. And he just takes away this accusation of our conscience. Do you believe? You know, I, I, don't, you know, I, think, I think every one of us has got to feel a lot of guilt, especially in relationships to people. Did I do enough for my father? You know, I was up there in, in Salt Lake City. It was only about six and a half hours by car. I always feel as though I didn't go down and see him enough. I feel guilt. Imagine what it would be like if I made a mistake. I had an aunt who backed out of, uh, the, out of this parking spot at the grocery store and some lady came along with her child behind and she ran over and this child died. What do you do? My dad told me about our, that our dentist was driving home one day after work and some child came running after on a ball out into the street and his car hit the child and he died. He said, he said, the townspeople used to talk about how it is that it'd be one, two in the morning and he was walking the streets of the town because he couldn't sleep. How do you deal with this, this guilt? And every one of us has got some aspect of it. Things that we failed to do. We say it, not just what we do, but what we fail to do. What happens? What is this gift that God's given to us? He has given us the gift of being able to go to him. And we don't, Luther says, we don't 
pick out what is sin and what's not sin. Let's see, if I had, if I had actually had only one beer, I wouldn't have done this, but now I did too. He says we take it all, we take our whole life, we put it into a pile, and we ask God to forgive it all. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He didn't say some. All sin. And so every single time, this is the reason why it is that if we don't believe that Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, for all the world, for everybody, if when we go to that Lord's table, if we don't believe that that blood has both the power to cleanse, but also a promise from God, that wherever that blood is, God takes away and washes away all guilt, then we would be misusing the Lord's Supper. Believe God. Believe Him. You have to, we have to do it all the time anyway. We're going to go up to the grave someday and we're going to say goodbye to our wife or our husband or our mother or our father. In fact, it's already happening among us and it's happening in great numbers now because we're the generation that our parents spawned us after the world wars, right? We're, I'm the generation that came upon, upon that one, a big generation. They're just dying like crazy. We go up to the grave. What do you believe? You believe your eyes or do you believe God's word? You believe that that body is going to actually come forth out of that grave and that those, that flesh is going to see, be standing there alive once again as certainly as Christ himself was raised in the same way that that tomb was opened up that you and I are going to stand on this earth again. We are going, it'll be a glorified earth. It'll be a transfigured world. It'll be an eternal world. Do you really, really believe that? And you'll notice that the one thing that stands between us and that faith is a conscience that cannot accept God's word. And you know what? There ain't nothing better. There isn't anything sweeter than being able to believe that word with all our heart. That's the gift of faith. So that's sometimes why it is that we need children because they teach us what faith really looks like. Yeah. Well, um, oh, we're getting there. I think I better try to at least get through verse 2, don't you think? <laughs> Sanctifying work of the Spirit through, through. By, by the way, um, keep, this, keep these words in mind always, always. Okay, means of grace. The means, the median, the, the means through which something comes. The, if, you have an, if you have a copper wire and the electricity flows through the copper wire, it's a means of power, right? Have you ever hear about how it is that copper wire was invented? Did you ever hear this? Two Germans fighting over a penny. I'm sorry. <laughs> we just, just got to kind of lighten things up a little bit here. But the means of grace means that God has, in his economy, in his way of doing, rather than 
communicating by means of, I guess you might say, Wi-Fi or something, that, that somehow that God puts something into us and it just kind of, it's like, was it George Burns that used to have that thing about he was talking to God through the radio or something like that? God doesn't just, you know, these people, these, we call them fanatics, the fanatics will say, God told me. Well, he didn't tell me. But what's so great is that God intentionally puts all of our assurance of salvation and the teachings that upon which we can base our faith, he puts it into a means through the Holy Scriptures. He binds himself. God cannot be bound by us, but he can bind himself. His word will never, ever be broken. It can't be. So what you do is you go up to that grave, and if you're doubting whether or not God's word is true, you grab onto that word and you say, God, this is what you've said. Your word can never change. And so, means of grace, why is it so important? Because as simple as it sounds, if I, if I ask you to what you, we're going to go, go into the church and we're going to worship and uh, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you that Jesus loves you. I'm going to tell you that Jesus forgives you. And that's, that's good. You're kind of relying upon me, I guess, to say that. And I'm speaking, I hope, from the scriptures. But when you go to the Lord's table or when you bring that baby to baptism, God is bound to do what he says. So when your conscience, as a hymn says, when your conscience upbraids you, you do what Luther did, and that is you point to the word and you say, you have to, God has to fulfill his word. He cannot go back on his word. He will not. He binds himself. We don't bind him. He binds himself. But that word of forgiveness is more valid than the existence of this creation. God's word can never change. Now, so we as Christians are people with means of grace. We don't have doctrines and teachings that lie outside of the scriptures. The scriptures are the means through which God speaks to us. Um, we'll um, take the next step. For obedience, top by notes, to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Okay, obedience. This is a, a word that they like to translate. It's a, it's a tough word because it kind of means this and it doesn't mean it. Let's say, for instance, that you were to ask me, Pastor Feeney, is your wife obedient to you? <laughs> it's not a question I ask her or it's not something I demand of her. Um, but it is something that she does do. A Christian obedience is very different from the obedience that we might describe as the obedience of the law in the world, right? Um, you'll probably find that, <clears throat> that uh, say for instance, um, your child soils his or her diaper. Are you obedient when you change that diaper? Love compels you, but the obedience is not the law legal thing. It is the 
love thing. You are obedient unto love. And so if Jesus says to you, if Jesus is kind of like the donkey, if Jesus says, I have need of it, would love move your heart to give it? Will you, when he says, here are my commandments, but he says, come follow me, go sell all that you have, come follow me, he couldn't do it. Why? Because he was extremely wealthy and he loved his wealth more than he loved his Savior. Obedience here is not the kind of, the kind of thing that kind of makes us all think of a rod and, you know, now that you're a Christian, you've got to do this. Love is something that's far more powerful. Uh, Professor Marquardt, I had Professor Marquardt at seminary. Some of you may have heard of him. And he was basically saying, see, love is always far greater than the law because it not only is it a power that is far greater than that, you must do this, but love actually is an interpretive thing that helps us to be able to read and understand the right thing that we should do. Is it love that disciplines your children? Did it? See, nowadays, secular world, you must never, ever raise your voice to children. Well, then I guess I sinned an awful lot. Spanking? Yikes! Nowadays, you don't dare do that, do you? But I remember that thing that my father was capable of doing, and I think it was a doggone lie when he said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> But I did come to understand that as a father when I had to discipline my own sons. It was very hard. Because love sometimes is very strange in the way that it acts and behaves. You know, love sacrifices. Love sometimes stands its ground. Love, out of love, sometimes you have to say no. Now that does not apply to anybody who's asked to be on a board in this congregation. But love is the most powerful force. And where there is love, there is obedience. And so that cleansed blood, that gratefulness, that is what it is that we as Christians offer to our Lord. So then he goes on, obedience to Jesus the Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. And that's, that's the... Um, the um, if you go back to what Moses did, you remember when Moses made a covenant with the people? He took half the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar and the other half he sprinkled it on the people, right? And it was a connection between the covenant, the promise that God was making to the people and that the people were making to God. And so here he is already going after the sacramental relationship that we have with God where he is making promises to us and we are making promises to him. All of this comes out of this action. By, notice these, these apostles have to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. They have to be. Who could write this if it was just a human being guided by his own intellect? And then 
always that kind of what you hear in the sermon a lot. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. The difference between this is not grace and peace we really would kind of like it to be yours and this is not howdy doody. Nice to see you. Uh, 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 this uh, dear so and so. Grace and peace when, when it's spoken it's spoken to be the thing that you are communicating to people. So kind of like the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's not just a kind of a nice thing that I'm saying. This is something being given. It's literally sacramental. Grace to you. Charis. Free. Unmerited. A gift straight out of heaven. And then what happens to the heart that receives God's grace? Erene, peace. Peace. So I want you to go away today thinking peace. There's peace between you and God. But now, especially for those who share in that peace, in this peace between God and me, it now creates a peace between me and my fellow Christian. Okay? So if God has forgiven me, who am I not to forgive you? If God loves me and he has chosen you Guess what? We are siblings. Literally. Every single one of us are brothers and sisters of each other. And what do brothers and sisters do? We live in peace and harmony. I was at, at this, you know, this wedding that I was at. On the, on the men's side, very, very, very nice family. Um, uh, the man and his wife, and they had five sons. And then he told me that they were all in business together. And then the brother-in-law was in the business, and it was the grandfather's business. And all this, I said, how do you get along? Well, then they started poking fun of each other. And I said, now I'm beginning to understand. You, you've, you've got enough love that you can actually laugh about one another's weakness or failings or shortcomings or whatever it might be. And yeah, you're living at peace with each other. Well, peace with God, peace with each other. Everybody here, everybody here, when we walk away from that Lord's table, there is not one single thing that stands between us, that separates us. And if it's true with each other, it's Ten times ten more true with couples. With a husband and a wife. When you walk away from that Lord's table, not only has God forgiven you for all your sins, but buddy, you better forgive her for all hers. Or put more correctly, she better forgive you for all yours. And that is a, that is a, that's another thing which today... 
come on, you guys. You know what the divorce rate is. And you know where the greatest problems are in our world today. People not only have no understanding of morality, they have no sense of guilt about what it is that they do to their spouse, and there's no cleansing that takes place, and there's no reconciliation in a relationship. Uh, we're supposed to, when we write that transformation that Paul was speaking about in Romans 12, the transformation that takes place is that we go from a love of attraction into a love that is a one-sided, unconditional love. Where we say, when we're at the altar, right, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death parts us. And we remember, if we, God can love us, then we can love each other for the rest of our lives, no matter what it is that comes between us. So there, 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 these are the... This is, this is something that Paul gives, grace and peace. So, All right. Um, I'll talk about this next week, I think. <laughs> so if you want, just leave them on the table, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them. Yes, Mark. Uh, yes, if you'd, if you'd like to have a nice, pretty picture of you in our congregational directory, please, uh, please uh, stop in and let them take a picture of you. All right? Uh, let's, uh, let's, close. let's close with a very brief prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we give you thanks that you have called us and brought us into this faith in which we now stand. We promise and pledge that we are going to, as Christians, remain faithful to you all the days of our life because you will remain faithful to us all the days of our life. We pray that we might grow in our understanding of God's word, of your scriptures, and we ask for a faith to trust in what that blood says to us every time that we enter into this church and receive from you the body and blood. We pray for our children, for future generations, that they too would remain in this faith. And we pray also for our loved ones, especially those who are suffering right now under the incredible fury of this wrath of a hurricane down in Florida, and for the people also in Texas who are suffering from the effects of that hurricane. Remind us all that we are strangers on this earth and that our greatest and one most wonderful treasure is in heaven and it cannot be touched or taken from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.